Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Nine, verse 1 to 10. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet had sent to Jerusalem, the surviving elders of exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs of the eunuchs, the official of Judah. Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shapan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hikiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord, of hosts, the God Israel to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not Listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in the, in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord, for thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will bring, and I will fulfill you to my promise, and bring you back to this place. Didn't she do a brilliant job? I think that was one of the hardest readings as well. That's Lucy, one of our young people in the church. She's fantastic. Hi, it's great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here of Westminster Chapel, and everyone is welcome here. So it's been a long time since I've done that. Our wonderful signer, Amanda, she's got COVID, sadly. The person who was meant to be anchoring had COVID, then the person who was covering, the person who was meant to be anchoring got COVID as well. Um, so it's been an interesting week for me, hence I've been kind of covering everything short notice, having found most of that out on Saturday. Um, but it's great to be here. Uh, and just a special welcome as well to the discipleship team, DTS team. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining us as well um, for today's service. Uh, we are in the final part of a four-part series called Both And. It's about 
the, the family that is Westminster Chapel, the kind of feel of our church family. And we've called it both and these identity statements because we believe we're called by God to be a church that's really about having our cake and eating it. That we're one of those unique churches that brings things together that often are separate. And I'm sorry, I'm obviously biased, but you can go to a church that might specialize in one of these things. We claim to have both of them together um, because we just think that's unique to who we are as a church, um, that we're a both and kind of church. And the particular topic that we're working on today is family and city. And I want to throw out a question, a couple of questions really all around the same theme to help you get a sense of where we're going with this. It's a really big question for all of us. How do you go on after disaster? How do you live well in the wake of a pandemic? How do you move forward? Now, some people would answer that question by you get out of the city, right? You leave the city as fast as you can and, and take what's built as the easy life, the comfortable life, the luxurious life. Hey, maybe it's even the happier life. Get out into the countryside and into the green fields and enjoy that. And something like 700,000 people did that through the pandemic and the lockdown from London. I think I've got a slide with a, with a newspaper clipping which shows that. Do you know, for the first time, Cornwall replaced London as the most searched for place to live on right move. You know, for me, I got sucked into this way of thinking. Maybe you did. Maybe you have moments like, I can work from home now. Why do I need to live in a city? And we were away in a, in a friend's house who's letting us stay in it in Ipswich. Good budget holiday. And, uh, and I, I got a little bit addicted to right move. So what I was doing is I was searching on right move. Gosh, what would it be like to live in Ipswich? What would we afford if we were living in Ipswich? If we moved up? And I found no less than three like dream properties. Honestly, like, whoa, this would be like, this, I'd be happy with this. this. I could retire here, basement, study, lovely big garden, all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, 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 we're not moving. We're not moving because there's a warning about this. You know, when the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, it's often actually just astroturf. It's, it's fake. It's not real. You know, and if you look, or, look around you a little bit, you'll hear stories of people who left the city who are now regretting it and moaning and complaining about what it's like. Now, I don't want to be a grumpy pastor. I'm just going to share one story because it's a real story which came up. You know, uh, and that, that's basically a, a dad at the school gate shared with us as a family. And he'd moved from the village to the city. And he was bemoaning how awful life was in the village. How unwelcome he and his kids were. They weren't set into the cliques and all that kind of stuff. And he basically said, he said, I'm never leaving the city again. It's like, whoa, that's totally the reverse of what our culture is saying right now. And I'd like just to bring to your attention the amazing Tim and Kathy Keller. Pastors in New York, authors, um, extraordinaire. I mean, if you hadn't heard of them, Google them. But they would agree with that. They would go totally against the cultural grain and say, it might even be better to raise your children in a city than out of a city. Ooh. That might jar with some people. So it's quite shocking in that sense. They've written blogs and articles and taught sermons, say it's a wonderful thing to raise a child in a city. 
just sharing that just if you, if you need any encouragement to help you on your, on your way in this journey. I think we need to remember this and we need to understand why does the city matter? Why is it important? Why do we need to get caught up with leaving the city? I'll give you four quick reasons. Reason number one is God loves cities and he sends people to them. That means he's probably sent you actually because you're here by the very fact that he's sovereign. He has sent you to the city in some ways or another. God sends people to cities. Don't just assume that's going to happen for other people and not not you because this is one of the ways that God works and I think he might actually be sending a vast majority of people to cities right now because that's the opposite of where people are going. God loves cities and he sends people to cities. He sent Jonah to Nineveh. He sent the exiles to Babylon. He sent his own son to Jerusalem. He sent Peter and Paul to Rome, the capital of the empire. He loves cities. People are in cities. He wants to reach cities. That was reason number one. Reason number two is that the need is often greater in cities. London has the highest proportion of lone single parent families in the whole of the United Kingdom. 19.1% of families in London are single parent families. Now, I have children. I also have a wife. I would not survive <laughs> as a single parent. I don't know how they do it. We've got people in our church who in that situation, families, they're amazing. But the need is huge like that in the cities. We can't desert the cities. Reason number three, what happens if those who have the wealth, the affluence, and they've got the, the ability to say, I can just move where I'm living so easily. I can move out of the city like that. What happens to the people who can't? They just all get left behind. They can't up and move. They don't have that freedom. Reason number four is just that the temptation is massive to leave the city. It's huge. You feel it. I feel it. That temptation for the easier life. So we've, we've got to come back and remind ourselves about the importance of the city that we're in, that God has called us to reach and serve. Not least because we're surrounded by false prophets out there who are prophesying the easy life. And they do that. The non-Christians do that. The Christians do that as well at times. There's the prosperity gospel preachers. Being a Christian is about just having a better, blessed, more comfortable, easier life. They preach Christ without the cross. They ignore Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross and you follow me. Not your suitcase and go and travel the world. No, no, no. Take up your cross and follow me. Hardship, trial, persecution, suffering. It's all there in the book of Acts and in the history of the church. Why are we surprised? There is blessing, of course, in the Christian life. But the obvious blessing are the spiritual blessings. Not necessarily the material blessings. There's all this false prophecy, false stuff, false teaching going on. And it was there in Jeremiah's day about this exile. There were these prophets going around saying, exile won't be that bad. Don't worry about it. It'll be over you know, as soon as you know it. A couple of months, you know, you know, a few years, nothing like 70 years. That Jeremiah, he's a lunatic. Don't believe him. He's talking nonsense. God wants us to have the easy, comfortable life. But God wanted something completely different for his people. He had a different plan. He was going to refine them through trial and adversity to reach the heart of a pain city so that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself, would fall to his knees and cry out in mercy before the one true God. They were that successful in their mission. Wow. 
the answer to the needs of London is not less families then. It's more families. More godly family use digging in, saying we're going to stay Build the kingdom here. More of God's church family going forth to reach the city for him. And that's what this letter teaches us. This letter to the exiles teaches us exactly that. It's saying that family and city, they come together. They come together. Let me give you some of the context, though, if you're less familiar with this this letter. Jeremiah chapter 29. The context is that in 597 BC, before Christ, uh, the kind of uh, powerful Babylonian nation by that point had taken over from the Assyrians. And they'd come and they'd invaded the territory of Israel. And they'd begun to take captive the nation of Judah to get her under their yoke. And they had taken in 597 BC 3,000 people as exiles back to Babylon with them until ultimately in 586 BC, Jerusalem and the city would be destroyed and so forth. Just try and imagine what it would be like to be in exile, to be taken from your homeland, from your home, from your loved ones, to have lost loved ones, to lose your job, your livelihood, all that was familiar, and to be brutally transported to a pagan, evil empire to live. Hence the question that I began with. How do you go on after disaster? How do you live through crisis? How do you live well in the wake of a pandemic? It's a very live question. It's a real question. It's the question I think that every person on the planet basically right now is trying to navigate. And God has an immediate answer to us. It comes from Psalm 137 verse 1. We sat down. And we wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. What did they do? They stand together. They had fellowship, community together. They they shared their lives together. They wept. They cried together. They remembered together the goodness of God, the purposes of God promises of God. I believe if you read the whole context of the psalm and you get to its final verse, which is truly shocking, you begin to understand that they, they grieved and lamented together. They screamed and shouted their rage and fury at what was going on, their questions, their, their, their inability to understand it or make sense of it. They processed their grief together. And there must be space for that in the church, in the church family. If you need permission to vent today, you've got it. (laughs) To wail, to scream, to shout, confusion. What's going on, God? Where are you, God? But God didn't want to leave them in that place. There was a space and a time for that, but they couldn't stay in that place. So God inspires the prophet Jeremiah to to write this letter to the exiles to help them to move forward, to rebuild, to gain a sense of meaning and purpose for their whole time in exile. So I want to bring out five points from this passage to you to help us find a sense of meaning and purpose. How do we rebuild after this pandemic? How do we rebuild even through it as it continues to go on? 
what does that look like for us? Well, the point number one is we are exiles. This is who we are as the people of God. We are exiles. Five times Jeremiah in this section, in this letter, refers to believers as, as exiles. Just to be clear, an exile is somebody who lives away from their true home. And in the New Testament, Peter, one of the apostles, calls Christians exiles. He writes to them, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, those who've been, who've been scattered through the suffering and the trials. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are exiles. If you're a Christian, you don't belong to this world. You belong to another. And therefore, we should not expect to have all the spoils of this world in this life. Because we know that greater spoils are coming in the next. We are not citizens of earth. We are citizens of heaven. And so God calls us, he urges us to reveal what our true home looks like to people who as yet haven't found their way home. And it's been hardwired into them because every person is made in the image of God that that is their true home. That they long for this, the far off country. The atheist who became a Christian, Professor C.S. Lewis, puts it absolutely brilliantly in a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And he's talking about books and beauty in the world and music and things like that. And this is what he, what he says about them. He says, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have not yet visited. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. Only on this earth. No, no, no. We Christians, we are exiles. We are not to be indistinguishable from people of the earth, but countercultural, stand out different from that as we live as exiles in 21st century digital Babylon. We live for a different world. And we're to awaken that longing for that world that everybody has. That's the first point. We're exiles. The second point is we are sent. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 4. God says to the exiles, he's writing, he says, to the exiles whom I have sent. So you get that? Sent. Sent. He sent them. It looked like the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was in control because he took them 
But no, no, no. God was in control. I sent you there. Do you see? Even in the chaos, and even in the uncertainty, even in the crisis of life, even in pandemics, God is in control. God remains in control. And that is good because there is a mind behind all the chaos. It's not random. It's not just random disorder that's happening. There is a mind at work behind it. And for those who love God and according to his purposes, he will work evil for great good. And he works in these times and there's meaning therefore and great purpose that's happening. So we can trust God in these times of disorder and chaos that he's in control. You can trust him because he's good. And he goes with his people. He never leaves his people alone. Already we're told at this point that as the people had gone into exile, that all of the special artifacts of the temple in Jerusalem had already been taken. They've gone to Babylon as well. And in the sovereignty of God, they weren't destroyed or melted down. They were preserved. The Ark of the Covenant and so forth, that, that spoke of the very presence of God's holiness. You see, God was taken into exile with his people. He did not leave them alone. And you see that throughout the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are put into the fiery furnace, but they're not alone. There is a fourth one in the midst of there. God never abandons his people. He is with us through trial and difficulty, his very presence. He goes into exile with his people to bring about victory for his people. And that, of course, is a picture of Christ and his coming, the ultimate exile who leaves the glory of heaven, an exile to come to this sin-soaked world, become captive as an exile on the cross. So he can take the sin of the world, your wrongdoing, your sin, your guilt, your shame on himself so that we can go free. Hallelujah. He's exiled so we are liberated. And the people, the exiles, were to be encouraged by the presence of God to go and to reveal what God is like to this pagan nation. Why? Because God's heart has always been for people of all nations, of all ethnoses, to come to know the true God. That's why he sends people to cities. Because there's lots of diversity of cities, of different nations and cities. And God loves people of all nations. The Christian faith is not just a, a faith for Jewish people. Or just for that part of the world. It spreads all over the world. And you know, hey, you don't have to wear certain types of clothing or speak certain language and diet, all of that stuff. No, no, it's a diverse faith. It's the most diverse faith in the world. We are a sent people. And perhaps the best example of that is Daniel himself. And his wise way of living became a powerful witness that touched the heart of the king. You want to know how to live today in 21st century Babylon? We learn from Daniel. He teaches us. And what he teaches us is that we have purpose. That means you have purpose. We have purpose as a church. There's a sense of calling upon us. We are sent once. We've been sent for this city, for the sake of this city of London, of Westminster, London and beyond. That, that's our, our calling. God has many people in this city. Even in the very prayer meeting before, that was, that was the verse that got put on Stephen's heart to share. He didn't know what the message would be. God has many people in this city that he's calling us to reach. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We're sent, we're sent people. We're sent once. 
us who follow Christ, us who trust Christ. That's our DNA. We are exiles who have been sent. And because we're sent ones, let's make sure we don't become went ones. Do you know what a went one is? Somebody who leaves the city for whatever reason without being called by God. Somebody who can pray, and it's possible to do this, to pray the Lord's Prayer, your your, your will be done, but they're really doing their own will. I'm living as I please. It's about earthly wisdom and logic. I'm going to take that job. I'm going to live in that place. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go over there. But never do you actually hear, I really heard God speak, and he called me to this place. We don't want to be went one. You don't want to be a went one. You want to be a sent one. Living in the power of the Spirit and His calling to do great exploits for Him. But what do we do as sent ones? Well, that's the third point. We're builders. We are builders. Verse 5, the encouragement is to build houses, live in them, to to plant gardens and to eat their produce. Verse 6 talks about um, building families, multiplying. Now, if you know your Bible, that should should ring very familiar. It takes you back to the right at the beginning. Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. It's the great calling, the cultural calling to the people of, of God. that they, We should be taming the earth. Mimicking God's great creative power in some sort of miniature ways again and again and again to reveal him and what he's like. I love the way Ted Tanau, um brings this out. This guy's brilliant, by the way. This is a super book, Popologetics. Highly recommend it, especially if you like um, film uh, and things like that. But he writes this, We have the innate ability to be creative like God, but in a creaturely derivative mode. God, the original creator, made men and women to bear his image as creators. He made us to tame and use creation to make new, beautiful, and useful things, such as pictures, houses, Chairs, songs, books, movies, games, and web pages. Just think of some of the Christian people who've done this really well, whose art, whose, whose, whose cultural creative products speak the better word of Christ. I think of Charlie Mackesy and this wonderful image he painted of the prodigal son. You can see it as a sculpture outside Holy Trinity Brompton. Or the, you know, the, the book that he did, that I always get this wrong, the horse, the, the bowl, the boy, uh, there you go. You got it up there. <laughs> I get those confused in the wrong way around. It's amazing. To give you little snapshots of God's kingdom, his way, the true home that's coming through that. We've got people like uh, Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings, amazing. Narnia. You, you've got uh, Elizabeth Fry. You've got the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury and their contribution to social justice. God's heart and care for the poor. You've got George K. Kinotti from Kenya and his involvement in scientific research and education and so on. You could name so many more. We've got our own at Westminster Chapel. You can see some of their artwork in the rooms behind. We've got Darina and Emma and Heather and David. Some phenomenal stuff in the main hall and lounge as you go through that way. Check it out. It's on the walls. We are all called, though, as Christians to build homes to, that express the true home, that reveal the true home, that reveal where, where we're going, where we're heading, so that others might see what that true home is like and say, yes, that speaks to what, what I've been made to long for and desire for. That starts to answer it. That that's makes us curious. This is why people love creativity. This has been hardwired into us by God. And we can all do this. You can do this with your home. 
with the way your home looks, with hospitality in your home, having meals with people, do it with the way that you work. I used to work as a lawyer for the, and then for the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. We developed a whole series of books on biblical theology of law. How to practice as a Christian lawyer, uniquely, distinctively. The medics have done that. You can think about that for architecture, basically everything. You can start to think, how do I build the kingdom through my work? We're called to do this, to reveal what God is like, build homes that speak of our true home. And then we're to build families. How do you build a family? Well, it's awkward, but you know, there's a man and a woman, and they get together, and I'm not going <laughs> to... The birds and the bees moment's not going to happen. If you're confused about that, read Song of Songs. Or, or speak to Stephen Sloan. He's one of the elders here. Make an appointment. He would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, I've no doubt. <laughs> um, I think the way we build families in the New Testament era is not by making the assumption that a man, a woman, 2.4 children... And since lockdown, a dog equals family. That's not Jesus' primary understanding of what family is. It's really important that we get this. Jesus talked about honoring our biological or adoptive parents. That's right. Even on the cross, if you remember, he's there. And he's honoring his mother by making sure that John... He's going to look after her after he's gone. But the primary way that Jesus thinks of family comes from Matthew chapter 11. And he's looking around at his disciples and his biological family are outside. And he says, pointing at them, this is my family. My disciples are my family. Those who do my father's will, they are my brothers, sisters and mother. Did you get that? If you're single and waiting to get married so you can have a family, you're wrong. You already have one. You already have one. And you have the family that will last for eternity. If you're married and you've got kids, don't neglect God's family by over-prioritizing your own. Don't miss the family that goes on forever. The bride of Christ. Do you love Jesus? Well, if you love Jesus, you've got to love his bride. Are you committed to her? Are you dating her? Show up when I feel like it. Come when I want to. Serve? No, I'll let other people serve. Or are you here, fully engaged in a local church, giving your all for the bride of Christ to build something beautiful and glorious? There are so many who are doing that already in this church. I mean, I mentioned them earlier. There were people in the kitchen working really hard. I don't know what time they arrived, but they got here very early. People in tech, people in worship, teas and coffees, the kids' work teams. It's phenomenal. And then in the week, you've got little stars, our parents and toddlers group, food bank, cap debt center. It's incredible. And we're doing something truly wonderful here. We're seeking to build what people long for. What people outside, I believe, want more than anything is a family. 
a place of acceptance, a place of transformation, a place that is full of truth, the word, a place that is full of life, the spirit, a place that is diverse, but also unified, a place that is family, but has a mission to care and love the city. That's what we're building. And it's an answer that so many people are looking for right now. And you could be part of that. You could be part of that. A few weeks ago, um, I was in a conversation with someone who'd been coming a little bit to our church. And he said, you wouldn't know this, Howard. But when I came here, I was almost at rock bottom. Could hear the sort of feel the emotion welling up in him, and he said, "But you and others in the team, and Westminster Chapel became the family that I needed, that got me through." That story is just going to be repeated again and again and again and again and again in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Here, be a part of that. Be a part of that. You don't want to miss out on that. But how do we see more of that happen? How does, how does more of that happen? Well, that's the next point. We are prayers. We are prayers. Verse 7 of Jeremiah says this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. Why the but? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Buts in the Bible, if you don't know, um, are key moments of contrast. Um, so when you're reading the Bible, it's good to try and spot the buts. Um, I don't know why you're sniggering. <laughs> I used to say I like big butts, and I cannot lie. Um, but anyway, the big butts of the Bible, but I won't go there, but I have already. Um, this but is a contrast, but it, may, it has nothing. So normally you get this bit of like, there's this negative stuff, but don't, don't do that, but do this instead. Don't do that, but do this instead. It's a contrast, but there's no obvious contrast here. You're going to build, and you're going to build families and multiply like that, but then do this as well. Oh, but that seems like it's in the same vein. What's the but? The but is you could do all of that just for yourselves. You could do all that internally. You could do all of that with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart and the wrong spirit by still being bitter towards those who brought you here, by still harboring anger and resentment towards the Babylonians. No, no, I don't want you to do it like that. But pray for the welfare. The welfare, the welfare, the welfare. It comes three times. Welfare of the city. Um, welfare is, in the Hebrew, is the word shalom. And that word means peace or prosperity or success, health, sometimes even deliverance. And the primary way that we can bring that about is through prayer. It's through, through prayer. I wonder if the reason for the gradual demise of Christianity in the UK and the West is because Christian people have primarily prayed for our own welfare rather than the city. We need to change. But we're too busy to pray. I feel too busy to pray. Got a lot of stuff going on and so many excuses you could come up with to pray. Well, Jesus had 
a more demanding job than I do, than I'm guessing you do, but he still made time to pray. Daniel in Babylon, he became prime minister of an empire and he still made time to pray. In fact, Daniel in chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, he tells us a lot, teaches us a lot about how to pray. How do you pray? Daniel prays unbelievably courageously. There are very little reasons or excuses that he would consider justifiable to not pray. So he's under threat of death, just to remind you of the context of being thrown into a lion's den and being eaten alive if he prays. And what does he do? He just goes, yeah, that's possible. But yeah, is a good enough reason? We might be like, oh, just, I can't get to the 10.10 Sunday morning prayer meeting today, you know, God, because... I just really needed to finish that Netflix series last night and I stayed up too long. I'm just really tired this morning. Or I really need to do my my yoga class or I need to do my exercise in the morning. I need to do this or that. Daniel's like, is it a good reason not to pray if I get killed if I do pray? No, that's not a good reason. I'm going to (laughs) pray. He prays. With the windows open so everybody can see so he can get caught. And he prays with humility. Prays on his knees before God, recognizing his need and his absolute dependence on God. He prays consistently. Three times a day he prays. And he prays with thankfulness. I mean, this is amazing. We would say, Lord, thank you for the food we're about to receive. He's praying, remember, and saying, thank you, Lord, that I am the food that the lions are about to receive. He's praying. How can you be thankful in those circumstances? He's thankful. Father, thank you for the grace, the mercy. Who am I, Lord, that you would bless me? We were a rebellious, sinful people, and you've come to refine us in judgment here. But yet, even in that refinement, you called us for great purpose. Oh, how merciful you are. Oh, Lord, bless this city. I pray for the welfare of this city. Lord, that you would come, you'd work through me and others, that we would work together for the welfare, the success, the prosperity of this city of Babylon. Is that how you pray? Is that? We'll try and make some space to, to pray that way in the service. The final point that wraps all of this up is that we have hope. We have hope. In verse 10, God comes to encourage the exiles and he says, I'm going to bring you home. It might be 70 years, but you're going to come home. And Jesus has promised that he's going to bring us home. And it's going to be a glorious home. When Jesus comes again, He's going to come to right all wrongs. He's going to break the yoke of injustice. He's going to undo the evil that sin has done in the world. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth that we get to enjoy forever. The answer to that deepest longing that you have is coming. And on that day, we will not simply smell a flower. We'll be able to touch it and enjoy it. Its very presence will be there. 
It won't just be sort of distant music or news coming from a far-off place. We'll be there. We'll be in the midst of it. We might even be playing the instruments. We'll be a part of it, in glory, in the rejoicing of this new kingdom where no eyes will shed a tear, no sickness will come. That is our world. That is our primary existence. We are citizens of that world, exiles on this earth, living in hope of that day when that is coming. And I tell you, soon and very soon, in a little while, in a short time, this whole life and existence that you have known will be just like a few hours in a nasty hotel compared to the glory that's coming. Coming soon. Hold on to hope. Stand firm in it. And as we hold on to this great hope, let us hold forth the word of life. Let us build his kingdom in this city. Let us pray for his kingdom to come in this city. And let us be expectant that many people will come to faith, grow, and be part and added to this church family. We're going to take a time to worship now in response, and then we'll have communion straight after that. And that'll be a moment maybe just to confess and repent of any ways in which we've really been living for ourselves. We've been went ones. But I'd love just for us to make time to be able to pray. To pray for the welfare of the city. To give thanks even already for the people in this church who serve and are so committed. And before we do worship, I want to just, I'm thankful for the people who help us to worship on Sundays, who lead us on the platform but we've got worship leaders in the seats as well. Vivian, Doreen, Ivy and others who stir us to worship. We can all have a part to play to give a taste of what it's going to be like when we come together to worship in the new heavens and the new earth. Why don't you stand? We'll pray. God of glory in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, that you've given us a home. All of us long for it. But we thank you that we found it in Christ, in his coming to be the great exile for us, to deliver us from our sin. And Lord, we want to honor what your word encourages us to do and pray for the welfare of London. And Lord, we ask you to bless this city. We ask you that Westminster and London would prosper and grow health would increase spiritual physical health would increase there'd be an amazing economic recovery there'd be a turning to you there'd be a better ordering of things government lord god a righteous government lord we pray for good new appointments around our prime minister at this time who will help him to lead with truth and honor and dignity lord we pray for those in the police on the front lines there lord god in hospitals Lord, be with them. Teach us, strengthen them and empower them to serve your purposes in seeking to work for goodness and righteousness and truth. But help us all, Lord, to play our part. But above all now, help us to worship you. For those who need to grieve, Lord, help them to find freedom to grieve if they're at that stage. But for others, give them a sense of meaning and purpose. Freshly call them, Lord, and help them to know that you have sent them to the city for such a time as this, to see hundreds of lives transformed for your glory. Amen.
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.